Well, good morning, Chapel family. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Peter. We began a study in 1 Peter last Sunday. If you weren't here, 1 Peter, as we begin our time, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask His blessing. Father, we are so grateful. Grateful for this day already. What a good day to have time to honor you through our singing, through reading of your word, through our presence together as we gather as as the family, an opportunity that we have as well to to partner with those around the world who are taking the gospel to places that we are not able to go. We're so thankful for our missionaries and for this month as we focus in on them to learn of them more and to get to know them better that we might pray more effectively and and uh, support them more wholeheartedly and that we might share together in the labors of their work in seeing men and women and children come to faith in Jesus. And we're so thankful as well for the great privilege of having your word. Father, you have spoken And in your word, it is here that we hear from you. It is here that we get to know you. And so I pray that this morning that you would speak to us through your word. May the the slow and stammering lips of the preacher be, be pushed to the background and may the truth of your word be heard incredibly clearly. And Father, may our hearts be receptive to what you have to say to us this morning. So we will not be those, like James says, who were hearers only, but those who are doers, who take your word and apply it in our life. So to that end, we commit ourselves and we ask your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the closest I can come to a game this morning is to ask a question, what does an alien look like? What does an alien look like? Does an alien look like Yoda? Does an alien look like E.T.? Or does an alien look like I offended numerous people this morning by inadvertently saying Dr. Spock instead of Mr. Spock? What does an alien look like? Well, the answer is Not the Hollywood type of imaginary alien, not at all, but the aliens that we are speaking of this morning is an alien meaning a person who lives here on planet earth, but whose citizenship is in heaven. Someone who is a child of God living in a world that is in rebellion against God. We saw last week that this letter of First Peter is addressed, it says, to elect exiles, God's elect exiles, God's chosen people, His chosen, special, beloved people. In other words, believers in Jesus Christ. But they are also exiles, people who are living as outcasts, as misfits, as foreigners, as aliens in this world. And the focus of this book is really how can God's elect exiles, His chosen misfits, 
live and thrive in a hostile world. Because these believers to whom he's writing, we find out through the course of the book, they are enduring very difficult times, very tough times. We saw last week the answer to that question, how can can God's elect exiles live in a hostile world? The answer is by, by leaning upon, by resting in, by standing firm in the grace of God. We see that in, in the very next or next to next to last verse of the book. We won't go there this morning where Peter states that is exactly what he has been communicating in this letter. We pick it up today in verse 13 of chapter 1. Hope you're following along. Therefore, now we'll stop. <laughs> Therefore. I stop there because whenever we see the word therefore, most of you have been students of the Bible long enough, you need to look to see what it's there for, and it sends you back to everything that has been said. It takes you back to last week's lesson. So if you weren't here, you'll want to go back and listen to that or read through the first part of this chapter. Because what we learn there is that God has given to us a new birth. He has given us a new birth into, it says, a living hope through Jesus Christ. And then, as those who have a new birth, a living hope, certain things should follow. That's the lesson here in this passage that that follows. Therefore, because we have a new birth and a living hope, now what follows after that is things that should be true of us. He says that we should live a different life. Your life, my life, should be very different from those around us who do not know Jesus Christ. It should be different than our unbelieving neighbors. We should be different than our unbelieving co-workers. We should be different than our unsaved friends, our unsaved classmates. That's what this passage before us contains this morning. It provides for us, as it were, a portrait, a picture of what we should look like as aliens, of what we should look like as as those folks who don't fit in here. What should be different about us? The, The text, really what outlines this text, and we don't see it clearly in English when you read through, but what is here is there are four imperative verbs, or what we would commonly call commands. Four commands that really give us the the skeleton, as it were, the backbone for this message this morning and for this section of Scripture. Four commands which call us to live differently, to be differently as people who have received a living hope. And when we obey these commands, when we put these into our life, when we flesh these out in our daily life, they produce in us the characteristics that God desires to be seen in us as His elect exiles, aliens living here on earth. We stopped after the first word, verse 17. Let's pick up the rest of the verse. Therefore, 
preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to summarize the command. It's this. It's live heavenly-minded. But the actual words that are used here in the verse, it's in verse 13, it's set your hope fully or the grace will be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully, in other words, on Jesus' return. We learned last week in the verses ahead that we have a fantastic, a guaranteed, a marvelous and a very protected eternal inheritance that is waiting for us. An inheritance that we will receive when either when Jesus Christ is revealed or when we go to Him through death. And so here the text is calling us, since we have that inheritance, it is ours. We've received it. It just hasn't been realized yet. That's coming. But since that's true, set our hope fully upon it. Don't just wear it as a t-shirt, you know. I've got my hope in Jesus. Don't just put it on a little plaque on the wall. Don't just have it as an occasional nice thought once in a while. Because that is our tendency as believers. When we learn truths, we tend to just kind of tuck it away and we put it on a bumper sticker or we put it somewhere. There's a nice little truth. But rarely does it come into our thoughts on a consistent and continual basis, in fact, it impacts everything in our life. But that's what he's calling it to do. Set your hope fully. What happens when this life is over? When Jesus returns? When we go to our inheritance? What he's saying is, take this truth to the bank. Turn it into shoe leather. Put all your eggs in one basket, this basket. Jesus is coming back and He's bringing my inheritance with Him. And that becomes what we hope in and what we live for. If we're going to do that, if we're going to live for Jesus' return, it's going to require a couple of things of us that are here in the text. He begins, verse 13, therefore, preparing your mind for action. Preparing your minds for action, brothers and sisters. You know, in America, here in the United States, we use a lot of figures of speech, a lot of colloquialisms. And it drives people who are learning English nuts. Even that phrase, drives someone nuts. That's an idiom, a figure of speech. See, we'll say something like, wow, he's on fire. And somebody who's just learning English is running looking for a fire extinguisher. <laughs> you know, How do I put them out? <laughs> and what we mean is, well, they ate something really hot. <laughs> he's on fire. <laughs> or what we mean is, he's really excelling at something. He's nailing it. There's another figure of speech. He is, you know, he's batting a thousand. He is, he is, uh, you know, we have all these figures of speech that we use. They're very common. Well, they're also common in Greek. And this right here, preparing your minds for action is really a figure of speech. 
A literal translation of that phrase is girding your loins. And we go, hmm? It doesn't mean anything to us. That's actually, if you have King James, I think the way it's translated in the King James, gird your loins. That meant something to the people in the day when everybody wore long robes. Ladies, you get it because you wear a long dress and you understand you can't hardly walk in them. I do lots of weddings and when people come up, you know, they're walking up in these dresses and you almost lose people every time. They're going up and down stairs. Okay? Because you can't walk and you can barely walk, much less run and do anything active. So girding up the loins means you take that long robe, men, and you take it and you pull it up and you tuck it into your belt, turning it into a, either a mini skirt or you tuck it around and turn it where it kind of comes up in a big diaper, you know. And... um and what you do that so that you can run, so that you can move, so you can fight or you can work. What it means is there's action that's needed and you better get ready. So if we were turning this into now an English figure of speech, it would be roll up your sleeves, tighten your belt, you know, tie your shoelaces, buckle up your seatbelt because it's going to get bumpy. You know, that's what it's saying. Saying, if you and I are going to set our hope fully on Jesus' return, what we can expect is that everything is going to work, seemingly work against us in doing that. And the battlefield is in our mind. That's why it says to prepare your minds and gird up your loins. And it says in your minds. Gird up. Why? Because the battlefield is there. If we're going to set our hope fully on the hope that's to be revealed when Jesus Christ, or the hope that we'll, we will receive when Jesus Christ is revealed, what we're going to discover is that our minds are going to be constantly moving to be distracted by this and to be attracted to that. And it's going to be focused on that. And it's going to be hoping in almost anything and everything except Jesus' return. This week, as I was reading through this passage and thinking about this passage and this message, I started just noting to myself, how often do I really think about heaven? Do I think about the return of Christ? Do I think about my internal inheritance? How often does that cross my mind? And it was embarrassingly little. Why? Because I'm focused on other things. I'm attracted to other things. I'm distracted by other things. And everything else grabs our attention. We're so busy with, you know, we got our to-do list of stuff to do. God, you can't, Jesus, you can't come back today because I got too many things to do. You know? And we're, we're distracted by the, by all the, the fun things and the people and the stuff and we've got all these things and they become our priority and they become our focus. He says, we've got to start taking the eggs that we've got in all these other baskets and putting them all in Christ. To use another idiom. We need to Prepare our minds for action. But he goes on to say this. Be sober-minded. Means what it says. Don't be drunk. 
But it's not talking about being drunk by alcohol. It's not talking about having our minds distracted or clouded by other things. Just following up on what was just said. We need to recognize the battlefield is in our mind and we're going to have to make sure that we think clearly or to use another idiom, to keep our wits about us. Don't let anything cloud our thinking. Don't just mindlessly, in other words, just follow the crowd in whatever they're doing. Don't just mindlessly just run with the culture or even just go with our natural inclinations or our our own desires. By the way, some of the worst advice you can ever hear, follow your heart. That's great. It's all over the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> it's bad advice. The heart of man is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, the Scripture says. The Scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is the way of death. Don't follow your heart. <laughs> That's not clear thinking. What is clear thinking in the context of this? It's saying with heaven in view... Thinking clearly is to look at life with an eternal and a godly perspective. And then, with that kind of thinking, looking at life, looking at possessions, looking at your to-do list, looking at at all of these things with an eternal perspective and a godly perspective, now start living intentionally. That is a rare thing. Most of us in this world, most of the time... Do not live intentionally. We just go back kind of reacting to life and, and living kind of, well, whatever comes along, rather than asking the question, how should I invest my afternoon with eternity in view? How am I to invest tomorrow with eternity in view? What am I to do with my possessions, with the wealth of resources that I have with eternity in view? What am I to do with the, with my physical strength, with eternity in view? What am I to do with my talents and abilities with eternity in view? What am I to do with my, with my desires and these things with eternity in view? It changes everything, he says. That's the beginning. Preparing our mind for action because that is where the battle really begins. And that is where the difference really starts. Living as an elect exile of God. Living as an alien in this world. Our priorities, our perspectives are informed by a different way of thinking. We find the second command that pictures us as aliens here in verses 14 and 15. Follow along. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, my summary of this command is this. Aim for holiness. The actual words that are used here, verse 15, is be holy. Be holy. Have you noticed that left 
to themselves, children do really stupid things. Foolish things. Dangerous things. Children left to themselves will play in the street, not even notice or think about it. Children left to themselves will play with fire. That's fun. Children left to themselves will lick the handrails at Six Flags. (laughs) Seen it. Children left to themselves will wander off on their own. Children left to themselves will, will stick stuff in electrical outlets that doesn't belong there. Last week, we were sitting in Cracker Barrel, and I looked over, there's a little toddler who had gotten tired, restless, waiting for their stuff, and gotten down off mom's lap, and, was, and they set him down on the floor. They're all talking, and I look as the kid reaches down, picks something off the floor, and starts eating it. Mm. Yeah. Fortunately, God gives children parents whose job it is to protect them from themselves and to teach them not to conform, not to follow their ignorant tendencies. Ah, you see where this is going. Similarly, like children, this passage says, our old way of life was driven by passions of ignorance. We did whatever we thought felt good. Or whatever seemed good. We ran with the crowd and we followed the whims and the ways of the world around us. There are so many things that we thought were no big deal. Or perhaps we even thought they were good. But now we have learned better from our Heavenly Father. And so He says here, don't go back living in those ignorant, foolish ways. Don't go back. You were living ignorantly then. And while at the time, most everybody knows that there are some behaviors, some sins that are dangerous, now we know that all sin is hurtful. It's hurtful to us and or to others. And we also know that all sin is offensive to God. And so this command calls for us to listen to our Father and to determine that we will never go back to such things. It's worth noting, by the way, that that command that's translated here, be holy, literally translates like this, become holy. Or even translates as keep becoming holy. The reason that's important is because I've noticed, maybe you have too, none of you are perfect. And this be holy isn't that, well, be holy, okay, and now I'm holy. The reality is we're a work in progress. And the the command here is that none of us is perfect or fully holy, but we are to be engaged in the process of becoming holy. The reality is many of us struggle with sins. And with certain sins, you know, I have sins that you don't struggle with and you have sins I don't struggle with. We all struggle with certain sins. And there's a tendency in us at times to just say, you know what, I give up. I'm just never going to 
conquer this. I'm never going to get past this. So I just give up and give in. And this is saying, no, 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 no. You don't say, I can't change. Nor do we excuse it and say, well, it's no big deal. It's just a little sin. No. What it's saying is it should be our aim, our ambition, our striving to be holy. It should be our aim. But then we ask the question, well, what does being holy look like? And there are many ways to answer that question and many different things we could think of. And I thought, how do we answer that question? What does being holy look like? Because what often comes to mind is, you know, somebody who's holy is somebody who wears really, really out of style clothes. And somebody who has a really, you know, like they look like they were eating lemon or something. And we think that's what holy is. Or we think somebody who's holy is somebody who does something really Really holy, like Simon Stylites. Back in the 400s, it was a long time ago, I was very young. Um, back in the 400s, Simon Stylites uh, got on a little platform that was about a meter square. That's a little over three feet square for Americans. And uh, on top of a 50-foot column, and he lived there for 37 years. Why? Because he wanted to be holy. Now, let me try to say this very nicely. That's not holiness. That's just weird. (laughs) And very misguided. That is not holiness. Trying to isolate ourselves from the sinful world is not holiness. And trying to do stuff on the outside that makes us look extra holy isn't holiness. What is holiness then? Well, it's defined for us right here in our text. It says that we are, as He, as God is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In other words, in everything you do. It is In everything you do, you'd be holy. And what is holy? It is be like God. It's not saying act like your God. It's not what he's saying. He's saying be godly. Exhibit godly characteristics in the dailies of your life. In this world where we live as aliens and exiles. We are to live godly. We are to be godly, to represent God, God's character when we are at our job, sitting in our cubicle. Or whether we're in the classroom, in biology. Or whether we are at the dinner table at home. Or whether we're driving down Interstate 70, a place many of us struggle with being godly. Or whether we are, you know, wherever we are, at the hairdresser, whatever. That we are to have words, we are to have actions, even thoughts that reflect the grace, the love, the beauty, the goodness, the purity of God. That's holiness. It's being that person who when people look at you, they get, they can see, wow. That's what God must be like. 
someone that kind, that gracious, that that kind of ethical and moral fiber and standing. The third command for us. So we aim for holiness by not going back to our old ways. And on the positive side, looking to be holy in a positive way in all that we do. The third command, verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The time of your exile, all the time you're here on life, He says, here's what you're to do. And the command is this. Again, my summary. Fear God. I love tools. Especially power tools. To me, if I have a job to do and it requires me to go out and buy a new tool, I consider that a win-win. A job gets done and I get a new tool. I am never happier than when the wood chips are flying or the dust is going out or the sparks are shooting out as as the tool is... I, I love that. While I love power tools, I fear them. I fear power tools because I love my fingers and I love playing guitar. About the only thing that is more exciting to me than a new power tool is a new guitar. (laughs) And it seems that about half of the carpenters that I know are missing a finger or two. You see, power tools are to be feared even while I love them. And I use that rather poor analogy to try to get the point that fear and love are not mutually exclusive. And our text here, you'll notice it says at the beginning, if you call on, on Him, on God as Father, then we are to conduct ourselves with fear in relating to Him. And we wonder, how does that fit together? God is Father and yet fear. If we call on God as Father, we do that because we love Him. And we love Him because He loved us. He loved us. He adopted us into His family. He made us His children. He invites us to call Him, in the Scripture says, Abba, which means Daddy. And yet Scripture is filled with passages like this one, which call us to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Scripture is full of verses that call for us. Even those of us who are God's children, we are called here to fear God, right in the same verse. God is Father, yet we are to fear Him. How do those fit together? Well, it's not that we are a fear that paralyzes us in terror, nor fear that, that causes us to cower from God in dread, but it's a fear that moves us to live with a sense of respect a sense of responsibility, a sense of accountability towards God. Recognizing who He is in His holiness, in His greatness, in His power, and in His wrath towards sin. 
We are His beloved children, but we also must recognize that we are dealing with the power of all the universe. We dare not come lightly to Him. There are two realities here in this text that impact and that address this fear and help us to get a sense of it, why it's there. The first is, again, going back to that very same verse, if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, what we recognize is that it calls us to, calls us to recognize that God is judge. He will judge. Not only will God judge the wicked, but the Bible informs us that God will judge those of us who know Jesus Christ. Believers in Jesus Christ are going to stand in judgment before God. Really? Yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, written to Christians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's written to believers in Christ, to Christians. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Let me be perfectly clear. No one is saved. No one goes to heaven. No one is rescued from sin by good works, by any good thing that we have or are or do. We can only be saved, we can only receive heaven as a gift from God. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it's not of works, so no one can boast. It's a gift we receive. We are not saved by our works. Matter of fact, our sins are forgiven. So what is the judgment that is here? This isn't a judgment that determines whether we go to heaven or hell. This is a judgment of believers and we get a little more information about it if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that day of judgment, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, the foundation is Christ, survives... He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, yet only as through fire. What he's saying is, believers in Jesus Christ, that's the foundation, those who put their faith in him. He's your Savior, you are forgiven from sin, and you will be in heaven, not because of your works, but because of God's grace. But there's a judgment, and the judgment tests our life, our works, all that we are and and have done in this life. And it says it's tested by fire. And whatever goes through the fire and survives, he says those who built with gold and silver and precious stones, you'll receive reward. And all that burns up, there will be no reward. We will give an accounting to God, it says, for how we live. And that accounting will determine the rewards we receive or the lack of rewards that we receive in heaven. That is a sobering reality The Scripture could not be clearer. No, we do not earn heaven. But as we live for Christ, as we seek to live as elect exiles in this world, we are investing our life, even as Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures where? In heaven, 
where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal. What we do now in this life matters. And so that should create in us a little healthy, hmm, that informs our fear. I'm going to stand before God who's going to examine my life. And so that should create in us a a responsibility, uh, a, a, a responsible fear. Hmm. There's another thing here, and that is, we pick it up in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Wow, there's a lot of words there and a lot of depth there. and We don't have time to dig too deep, but I'll just simply put this. The second thing that informs our fear is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Slavery... And slave markets were commonplace in the Roman world. Uh, that word there, ransomed in the ESV, some of you may have a different tra- translation, may say the word redeemed. But that word resonated in the minds of the people of that day because they knew about slave markets. A slave was there because they owed a debt. They were reduced to a price that they could not pay. And the only way to get them out of slavery was to pay the debt that was owed or the price that was demanded. We weren't just living worthless, futile lives here. The Bible is saying that, and this text is saying, we were enslaved. The only way for us to be to gain freedom from sin's grip and from sin's penalty is we needed to be ransomed. We needed to be redeemed. We needed to be bought out of slavery. And the cost for that ransom was the blood of Jesus. It wasn't silver. It wasn't gold. It was the blood of the precious Lamb. The Lamb of God without spot, without blemish. He says here that that rescue plan wasn't something God made up along the way. Oh, man, look what the mess the people are in. What are we going to do? I don't know. Well, I guess we'll have to. Let's see here. Maybe, hey, Jesus, you go down and can you take care of that? It says it was before the foundation of the world, before the world was ever made. God knew that sin was going to enter the heart of man. That man was going to need to be ransomed. And the plan was set in place. The Son of God would come and bear the penalty of our sin upon the cross of Calvary. His blood would be shed for us. Who Those of us who there was no way that we could ransom and rescue ourselves. We were hopeless and helpless. And God intervened through the death, and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all who call upon Him will be saved. Are you trusting in Jesus this morning? If not, I invite you, I call you, I beg you, put your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only hope that you have. It should cause, it should blow our minds when we think of this. Why would God love us that much? 
Why would he ever even create us knowing this is what it was going to cost? Why would he do that? I have no answer for that. But it should cause us to go, wow, thank you, God. And the only response, the only response that really makes sense, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for who? For him who for their sakes died and was raised. These two realities, that God is judge and that He will judge, and that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ Himself, those two realities should move us and change us to live our lives with a deep sense of fear, a fear that manifests itself in responsibility and accountability. I want to invest my life and use my life in a way that pleases Him. The fourth command, very quickly, is found in verses 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The command, again my summary, is love earnestly. The actual words there are love one another earnestly. What he says is that when you heard, when you first heard the gospel, and you heard it and you, you believed it, you received it, you, you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Then he says, your souls were purified and you were, he says it again here, you were born again. In that moment you became a child of God. God became your father, you became his child. Uh, as John chapter 1 verse 12 says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, those who believe on his name. We became children of God. When we became children of God, guess what? We, be, we became part of a family. We instantly gained millions of brothers and sisters, those who also are children of God, who put their faith in Jesus. And he's saying here that having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, says you entered into this family of God and these dear brothers, these dear folks in these churches have discovered and enjoyed this relationship of brotherly love with one another. It is reality in their experience. They were outcasts suddenly in their own hometown. They were aliens in their own hometown, but they are now part of a community of the saints, a fellowship of the believers. And they have this brotherly love. The Greek word, many of you know, is phileo, from where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It is a, a kind affection for one another. It's not just an emotion, but it is a warm feeling of love. There's a, there's a goodness here, a nearness here, a brotherly relationship here. So they're already experiencing that. But then he moves on to the command. The command is the next phrase. The command is, 
having that already, now love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He switches the word. And he moves from the word, the word phileo, brotherly love, and he moves to the word agape, which is unconditional and sacrificial love. It's the kind of love that describes God's love for us. It's the kind of love often that describes a mother's love for a child. It is that devoted, faithful, unselfish, unconditional love. And he says, brothers and sisters, you already have this this brotherly love. Now, add to that agape love. The love that doesn't quit. The love that doesn't fail. The love that does the hard work of loving. The love which loves others and does what is good for them and desires what is good for them even when you don't feel very loving. It's the love that that loves someone even when they don't respond kindly, nicely, or lovingly. It's the love that keeps going even when it costs us something like time or effort or our resources. It's the love that expends itself, you see, on others. Matter of fact, it's modified here, it's enhanced by the word agape love earnestly. It's the only place this word is used in the New Testament. It's an athletic term. It's an athletic word. And it literally means this, stretched out. And what it's saying is that it's loving to the max. It's loving to stretching out to all you can do. All you can. It's, it's doing everything you can to love others. That's how he says we're to love. And then he uses, and there's this confusing thing, but I have to just explain the next words. We read this about the Word of God abides forever. And what's he saying? He goes back and quotes from Isaiah. And the point is simply this. You are born again. You are saved by believing the Word of God, the Gospel. You're born again by believing God's Word. And God's Word is, is living and active and it is imperishable and it never fails. And so now, brothers and sisters, let's continue to obey God's imperishable living word and let's not give up, let's not quit. That's the point. There we go. Four commands that God desires for us as aliens, as His elect exiles. Live heavenly minded. Aim for holiness. Fear God. And love earnestly. If we live like that, to anybody who knows you very well and observes you very long, they're going to go, you're not from around here, are you? Let's pray. Father, this is huge. But this is what you've called us to do because as we do these things, we reflect your goodness, your grace, your heart to an unbelieving world. As we do these things, it becomes apparent that we are your children. We have different values, different, different hopes than the rest of the world. 
And we love them because you love them. And we love you. And we can't wait for the day we get to heaven. But in the meantime, we're going to make the most of this time we have in this planet where we really don't fit in. We're going to live, as Paul says, as your ambassadors in this place. Father, may that be true of us here at Chapel of the Lake. May these be the characteristics and the qualities that that describe us, that we're heavenly minded, that we are aiming for holiness, that we fear You, and that we love earnestly. Then by Your grace, Father, might You use us to draw other people to You as they see You in us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.